You're now into the third week of Easter celebration. Thankful for Sam preached last week while I was out of town, but he continued the theme of resurrection. And this might be strange for you who perhaps grew up accustomed to one Sunday of Easter and then back to normal church. The truth of the matter is, however, that um, not only liturgically uh, does the church tradition spend 50 days celebrating uh, the Easter season called Easter Tide until Pentecost, but in reality, every single Sunday, as I have already said, is a resurrection Sunday. That is, after all, the reason the Christian Sabbath is on Sunday and not Saturday. So he is still risen. He is risen every Sunday we gather. He is risen every day we live. That being said, I do grant you that in our culture, um, Easter Sunday is the big day when everyone uh, comes out. Uh, It's when we have many guests with us, uh, including uh, those who only come uh, twice a year, Christmas and, and Sunday, or Christmas and Easter, for which I'm grateful anytime they come, along with Um, Often many skeptics and even unbelievers are with us on Easter. And so you can tell, those who are um, regulars here, you can tell in my preaching uh, that I I do try to craft my Easter message with that in mind. But if you're here today, uh, two Sundays after Easter, uh, the morning after the Derby on a rainy morning, chances are um, you are a follower of Jesus or at very least you are taking seriously the claims of Jesus and the invitation of Jesus. If you're here this morning, you really want to be here. And so what I want to do is preach an Easter sermon for our community of faith. Those that I'm not necessarily trying to convince you that Jesus is risen, but those I want to give a deeper, um, richer fuller understanding of what that truth means. This is a particular passion of mine, um, of recovering a robust doctrine of the resurrection in the church in our day. If I were to ask uh, you, if I were to ask in just your everyday evangelical, how are you saved? I guarantee you the cross in some capacity would come up in that answer, but I wonder if the resurrection would come up. The truth of the matter is that the cross and resurrection go together as as two sides of the same coin, both equally necessary for our salvation. You take either of them away and you are not saved. I understand, or I probably assume that you understand that if you take the cross away, this is, I know why I'm not saved, but if I were to take the resurrection away, why does the gospel fail? Why is our salvation incomplete? Truth of the matter is, is that we are saved, yes, by the cross of Christ, but also by the empty grave of Christ. And my goal this morning is that after leaving here, you will, um, yes, understand that, but appreciate it and and apply it to your lives. So here's what I'm going to do, and this is why I I had three different passages there. I'm going to go through the three major phases of our salvation and do my best to show us how the resurrection is necessary and applicable to each of them. Now, when I say the three phases of our salvation, what I mean is the past, present, and future of our salvation. The Bible speaks 
of God's salvation, of Christian salvation as a journey. You were saved. Of course, you know the the theological word for that is justification. You are being saved, sanctification, and you will be saved, glorification. And I'm suggesting that all three of those, justification, sanctification, glorification, past, present, future, all three of those are accomplished not just by the cross, but also by the resurrection. And so those three phases, how I'm going to organize my defense of that. You, you have been saved by an empty grave, you are being saved by an empty grave, and you will be saved by an empty grave. In just the order that we, we read those passages. So let's start in Romans 6. You have been saved by an empty grave. Verse 6, we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now that is a very familiar thought, right? By faith, we are united to Christ and his death is our death. He dies and is condemned on the cross as a substitute on behalf of his people Simply put, he dies on the cross for our sins. We know this. And in this way, my sin is no more, or as Paul puts it here, it is brought to nothing. Okay, that's justification, right? Well, no. That's half of justification. We're not there yet. There's more to it. It does not, it does us no good to be united by faith to a dead substitute in the grave. Which is why Paul doesn't stop there in Romans 6. Verse verse 8, continue on. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we also will live with him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you must consider yourself dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Here's the point that he is developing here. We were not just united to the death of Christ. We were united to the resurrection of Christ. And that is why we can truly, officially, finally say no condemnation. We die with Christ... Then Christ came back, which means we came back, which means that we now have a new life that is free from the death sentence of sin. I've often illustrated it like this. This seems to help people appreciate the resurrection's importance. A capital punishment is obviously the, the ultimate form of punishment because there's no life to be lived after the punishment is administered, right? So it doesn't get worse than uh, being put to death. But you know what would make things really interesting is if someone was put to death by the state and then they came back to life. That would be an interesting Supreme Court decision. What do we do with that one? Do we put them back to death? Well, no. The sentence was death. We carried out the sentence. Justice is served. We can't just keep killing the person. I guess you're free to go. This is the only way. To escape the punishment of death is to be sentenced, to be executed, and then come back to an entirely new life, which now is free from that previous sentence. But of course, we're dealing in theory here. 
because we know that's impossible, but then there's Jesus. And Paul is saying you are united to his resurrection. He rises from his death sentence, which actually was our death sentence, which means that we have risen from our own death sentence. Yes, as Paul says, the wages of sin is death. Yes, it's true what God said at the beginning. If you sin, you're going to die. All of that is true. But Jesus died that death for us. And then he is risen again to a new life for us. So it is as though we are cosmic criminals who have been put to an eternal death for our sins. But have risen from our execution and are free to live an entirely new life. A life that the sentence of death can no longer touch. So in this way, the resurrection of Jesus completes what is called justification. In the cross, Jesus dies our verdict. In the resurrection, Jesus offers us a new life, free from the sentence of death, with a new sentence, no condemnation. Now, let's move on to the nature of that new life that we are now living. We have been saved by an empty grave. Next, we are being saved by an empty grave. Now we turn to Colossians. Colossians 3. If then you have been raised with Christ. So now he is applying the truth that I just preached of our union to the resurrected Christ. If you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above. Where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things of the earth, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Do you see his argument? If it's true that by faith we are united to Jesus and Jesus isn't dead, he is risen, okay, well, where is he? Well, he is exalted on high, Paul says. And since you are still united to Jesus, then that's where you actually are. And so Paul says the logical overflow of this truth is to seek where you are. Following Jesus is a commitment to become what you are. That's why Paul here is telling us to seek to inhabit the place you already dwell. Such strange language. Since you are there, seek to get there. He's saying, make this life look like the life that is already yours in the risen Christ. You know that disruptive uh, conviction that every Christian experiences? That's the tension of having our identity in Christ and yet living lives that are contrary to that identity. Essentially, the Holy Spirit won't leave you alone. He will not leave you alone. He is an unrelenting witness to your truest self, to your truest identity in Christ. And he will not leave us alone until we become who we are. And so ironically, that unrest that causes many Christians to doubt their life in Christ is the truest indication that you are alive. You are deeply unsettled because you're not you yet. Who are you? You are in Jesus who is risen and exalted. Therefore, Paul urges us to seek where you are. Now, do you see how this 
changes or maybe I should say adds to the, a new motivation to sanctification or to living out the Christian life. Typically, we think of sanctification as grounded in the cross, and there's nothing wrong with that. That is exactly true. In other words, the argument goes like this. He died for you, therefore live for him, right? We love because he loved us first. So we look back upon his death and what he has done, and we are filled with gratitude and love and motivated to obey him. All true. But sanctification should also be motivated by the resurrection, Your identity is in the risen Jesus who is in heaven. Therefore, seek to live on earth as it is in heaven, as the prayer says. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's what the Christian is doing in their own life. Seeking to live on earth as I am in heaven. And this explains why sanctification is so tough. It is not easy to live as an inhabitant of heaven... While inhabiting the earth. Which is what Paul is commanding us to do here. We recently commissioned two teams of college students. For summer uh, trips. One to Brazil. One to Thailand. Now what they will experience is a completely new culture. In some case I guess you could even say a completely new world. And they will slowly learn to assimilate to that new culture. But do you know what sanctification is like? You don't actually move to Brazil. You're still here in America, which is all you've ever known since birth, but you are now declared a citizen, an inhabitant of Brazil. And then I tell you that since you're a citizen of Brazil, you're going to have to follow the customs. You're going to have to speak their language. You have to to live Brazilian culture. You need to learn how to live as a citizen of Brazil, all the while living in the culture that is most natural to you. You need to unlearn your natural culture while practicing the ways of a new foreign culture. That's not easy, and that is what sanctification is all about. Union to the resurrected Jesus has changed your citizenship to heaven. We are united to Jesus, who is risen and reigning in heaven. Therefore, that's where you are. Therefore, your citizenship is in heaven. However, this is where we find ourselves now, here in this world, the culture of our old citizenship, the culture that comes natural to us. And so while other religions ask you to live the best you can in this world in order to get to heaven, the gospel says your identity is already in heaven, so live like heaven in this world. That's a lot harder. But here's the encouragement. So it's difficult But here's the encouragement. Sanctification, grounded in the resurrection, is now sure and unshakable. Though it is the most difficult journey possible, it is at the same time the most assured journey possible because it is not based upon your ability to get there. You are there, Paul says. He says, if then you have been raised with Christ, then you are hidden with Christ in God. Your truest identity is right now deeply embedded, enveloped within the risen Christ in the Trinity. That's sure. Nobody's putting him back in the grave. It is sure you are risen and nobody can snatch you from, as we sang, he will hold you fast. So sanctification is motivated by resurrection. It is secured by resurrection, which means it is certain 
absolutely certain to yield our final salvation. Let's close with that. We were saved by an empty grave. We are being saved by an empty grave. Finally, we will be saved by an empty grave. Now we turn our attention to glorification. Paul's famous words in 1 Corinthians fifteen fifty. I tell you this, brothers. Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. The point that Paul is making is that we cannot inherit glory in our current state. Because in our current state, we are not fit for glory. These corruptible bodies cannot inhabit an incorruptible destiny. So there is this seemingly impossible to overcome dissonance between our current state and our eternal state. Our identity as we experience it now and our identity that is hidden in the risen Christ. And the dilemma is that those two cannot be merged together because one is not fit for the other. That's what Paul is saying in 1 Corinthians 15. These perishable bodies cannot receive our imperishable identity that is in Christ. This is why glorification is such a crucial step in our salvation. The final step. The doctrine of glorification is what overcomes the tension between our our experience and our identity. Where we will actually, finally experience our identity in Christ. As you now experience your identity in these fallen bodies. That is to say, something's going to happen to you. To where you finally become you. What's going to happen? 51. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we will all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet... For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. For the perishable body must put on imperishable. Mortal body must put on immortality. This is his point. We have to die so that glorification can take place. This mortal body must be buried that an immortal body might rise. This corruptible existence must go to the grave that the incorruptible might rise. In other words, the resurrection has transformed the grave into merely an instrument that yields our final salvation. Death does us a favor by swallowing up what is corruptible that the incorruptible might rise. Let's watch that happen in verse 54. When the perishable puts on the imperishable... And the mortal puts on immortality. Then shall come to pass the saying that is written. Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? Creation has been since Genesis 3. Creation has been longing to be able to say that to the sentence of death. And Paul is saying only at this point will we fully, finally be able to say it. Salvation is is complete when resurrection is complete. Notice Paul says, when the perishable puts on the imperishable, then shall come to pass, O death, where is your victory? Final victory is when we ourselves, who were declared to be righteous in justification, who struggle to be righteous in sanctification, will finally be righteous in glorification. 
and the point of Christ's resurrection as it pertains to our final glorification is that we know for certain that it can and it will happen. Death has won every single time except once. And you are united to that once. One time, happily ever after happened. One time, a flower did bloom out of this cursed, barren Genesis 3 land we all live in. And that flower, Paul says, is not an isolated flower. It is the first flower of an entire harvest that you are a part of. So... We don't look upon the billions and billions and billions and billions and billions of occupied graves to show us our destiny. We look at the one unoccupied grave to tell us our destiny. And when that destiny becomes our actual reality, salvation by resurrection is finally complete. Okay. Justification, sanctification, glorification. Without the resurrection, each of them fails. If Christ is not raised, then you are not saved. The church Christ is risen from the dead. Which means you are saved. So let's talk application. My application, thank you, that, that's the theology of the resurrection. Let's not leave it there, right? Let's not just make this a mental exercise. Let's go to our hearts. My application this morning is this. If I'm talking about resurrection saved by an empty grave, then, then my application has to be assurance of salvation, something we were all desperate to find, something that Puritans call the golden treasure of the Christian faith, where you feel assured, assured of your salvation. So often... We look to the cross for that, and rightfully so. But this morning is application. I want us to look to the resurrection for our assurance, okay? So listen to me, all you despairing souls who have a hard time believing in the truth of your salvation, who cannot accept the good news of the gospel as true for you. Oh, it's true for them. I'm the one exception who so easily listen to the whispers of your accuser, Satan, who are so prone to doubt and despondency, who think you've blown it and you've given up all your second chances and there's no hope for you, listen to me, bewildered, struggling saints of God. Do not only look to Friday's Calvary. Behold as well Sunday's empty tomb. Here is the more fuller, theologically robust answer to assurance of salvation. Justification by resurrection. Though it is true that I deserve condemnation and eternal death, in Jesus I have already been put to death and was raised to new life, which means condemnation no longer applies to me. Been there, done that with the death thing. And now I'm alive with no condemnation. 
Sanctification by resurrection. Oh, how difficult is this journey of new life, learning to live as a citizen of heaven while still immersed in this world. Yes, I often stumble. Yes, I often fall. And if I had to get there, I would never get there, but I don't have to get there because I'm there. My identity is hidden in Christ who is risen at the right hand of God. I don't have to get to heaven. I'm in heaven. Pressure is officially off as we struggle to live heaven on earth. Glorification by resurrection. Oh, how I long to actually experience my identity in heaven. I don't want to struggle to live this ethereal identity that is in heaven that I'm trying to perform on earth. No, no, I want to experience it. I want to be who I actually am in Christ. But the problem is that I'm not fit for that. I want it, but I literally can't have it. I'm trapped in this fallen, corruptible body that cannot house a glorious, incorruptible destiny. Yes, but the good news is you get to die. Yes, I said that right. The good news is you get to die. Because in the burial of the perishable, the imperishable can now rise. In the burial of the corruptible, the incorruptible might rise. And finally, salvation will be complete. We will be able to say to the curse of death given all the way back at the beginning of Genesis, then we will be able to say, death, where is your victory? Death, where is your sting? Finally. Yes, of course. Of course, of course. And you'll hear us say it week after week. Yes, of course. Salvation by Christ's crucifixion. But just as important, just as hopeful, just as necessary and glorious is our salvation by resurrection. Let me pray. Thank you, Jesus, that you are risen from the dead and therefore true. Therefore, forgiveness of sins and our salvation is true. Help us not just to appreciate it theologically, but to be overwhelmed by it emotionally and to apply it practically. Help us, Lord, as we struggle to live this identity. Help us, Lord, to live on earth as it is in heaven. For we are in heaven with our risen Christ. Give us strength now through this meal, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.